Okay, well, thanks very much. Um, thanks to Ian and uh, to CMS and FLL and the Cool Japan Project. You know, I've known about the Cool Japan Project for a number of years, and I'm glad that noise is finally cool, you know, after all these years. But it's also that, you know, I've been watching all the things that he has been doing over the years, and of course he broke the path for me to do this kind of work, so I'm really grateful to him, and I'm uh, glad to be uh, talking a little bit about sound in the context of media studies today, and I hope we can have um, some conversation about that as an area. Um, and, uh, you know, as Ian's introduction mentioned, there are other ways to think about uh, noise than just in the terms of sound. Uh, there are the politics of, of its um, use in, in organizing people. There are the aspects of communication and miscommunication that accrue to globalization, uh, to cultural difference, and also music, uh, uh, which is uh, what I'll talk about today. So, you know, there is this music genre called noise, and I'm going to talk about that. But I also consider Japan noise as a global media circulation. So it's as a, a context of a transnational imaginary, thinking about what it means to create a, a pop cultural scene that's global. Um, and uh, for this, I use this term cultural feedback. So I want to talk a little bit about feedback. Wait. And um, feedback as a musical practice uh, of sound making, as well as a metaphor of reciprocity and participation. So I'm going to talk about feedback in, in four ways. I'll put up a, a little breakdown for it. Um, I wish I had made that, those lines thicker. Uh, but it says uh, uh, feedback is a process of, of globalization. So it's a, a media circulation. It's, it's sort of a, a looking at cultural glo globalization through the lens of media circulation and looking at it as a process and not simply as, as something that moves from place to place. Right. So um, secondly, I'm going to consider it as a production of media circulation, so as a product of exchange. Um, as something that, again, is it, that it, it is still something that you have to be able to relate to as a mediated as a media object and as a mediated, you know, kind of listening or sound making, and in that sense, it has to do with the transformation of place, like where you listen, where you make the music, where somebody is, and, and then culture can come back into it. Um, third, it's a practice of sound making and listening. In that sense, feedback is a pretty core process of creativity in in in. Uh, in noise. It's also part of other musics, but there's a kind of concentration or distillation of, of the qualities into a, 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 a sound making procedure that is iconic uh, uh, with the forms of imagination that, that have to do with the global music scene. So making things in a loop in, that's always changing, that's always in cycle, that's always uh, in flux. And then finally, as a condition of technocultural subjectivity. And I want to talk a little bit about this idea of technoculture and uh, the idea of an experience of selfhood that, that occurs in circulation. So uh, the kind of subjectivity that um, comes out of identifying with a music that doesn't have a clear identity. And noise is very much about destabilizing the relationships between musical identity. It's not like being, let's say, a metalhead, right? even though there are comparisons as somebody was mentioning earlier, to black metal and things like that. Um, so looking at feedback in musical circulation helps us put experience back into models of globalization. Uh, and feedback helps us to recognize the crucial role of media in creating new musical subjectivities. So with that as a setup, I want to talk a little bit about Japan noise and how I came to it, how I came to the study of this. Uh, it's a very long-term ethnographic project for me, but it's even longer as something that I was just interested in. Um, and and the, the idea of studying it came out of that uh, sort of general interest. 
with something that I thought of as a genre at, at first, uh, a genre of music called noise or noise music, and often in the United States, it was called Japan noise. So I wondered, you know, when I started the project, how, why should it be called Japan noise? If there's going to be a music called noise, what could possibly be cultural about it? Um, and the idea, the term at least, of Japan noise dates back to the 1980s. And at the time, Japan was described as the enigma of contemporary global culture, especially among North Americans who were transfixed by the contrast between the nation's emerging economic power and its idiosyncratic local culture. In particular, Japan's association with electronics, technology, and manufacturing sealed the nation's global role. Technological production was important for Japan's uh, modern cultural identity since uh, the immediate post-war, even before the economic miracle that caused the national recovery that came arm-in-arm with uh, technologies like uh, production of transistors and quartz timepieces and things that became stamped with made in Japan uh, in the 50s and 60s. And by the time you got to the 80s when mu- noise music started to happen, Japan's techno culture had stepped into high gear and it started to be associated with some of the pop cultural identifications of Japanese um, selfhood that, that circulate now under the rubric of Cool Japan or through all sorts of, of, of uh, different channels, um, like anime uh, and you know, narratives, science fiction narratives of cyborgs and space travel. So Japan became a place to imagine these things. But soon, very, very soon after these things began to circulate, the, ac- the economic power began a long, slow decline, and the lost decade of the 90s has now become... Uh, a narrative of, of you know, what to avoid. So uh, a, a model of how to predict America's recession, or recessionary um, outcomes uh, in general. So there'll, there'll be the idea of a Japan-style public work stimulus that reiterates these um, relationships between uh, the progress of Japanese and American modernities. So it's the beginning of this uh, decline that Japan noise starts to take shape as the emblem of a Japanese style of music in the West. And so in 1990, uh, when I had dropped out of college to move to Kyoto to teach English, and I was watching the glory days of the bubble recede into the distance, you know, I've been told that I could go and, you know, get a job anywhere. It was a lot more difficult than that, but I was interested in all sorts of things uh, Japanese, and I didn't really know uh, much about what that meant. Um, and so it was, a, it was an interesting period of, de, of finding out what those things are. And I was really interested also in popular music and experimental music and computers and things that I found uh, immediate resonance with, with, with people. Um, and uh, I began to connect to these punk scenes and these other kinds of music scenes, but I never heard of something called noise. And so when I went back a year later to the United States, that's when people started saying to me, well, have you heard of this music called noise? And I said, no. And they said, well, have you heard of such and such? And I said, no. Have you heard of such and such? No. Well, they are from Kyoto, or they're from Osaka. Um, and I said, well, that's, that's odd. I've never heard of this, and I've never heard of this music. But lots of people were saying that there was this music from Japan called noise. And over the next few years, I heard more and more about the genre of noise and noise music. And eventually, the term Japan noise crystallized among American listeners. And this idea was at the, all, all the while feeding back to the Japanese uh, creators who had supposedly invented this new genre. Um, and they didn't think that they had invented the genre at all. They thought they were making experimental music that connected to all sorts of different subcultures. And, um, 
in the United States, meanwhile, the term applied Japan noise to almost anything experimental or just generally weird from Japan. So you had groups like, maybe you're familiar with some of this, the Boredoms and the Ruins um, at the time, who by their own definitions are not uh, noise, but noisy music. Um, and they were grouped in with acts like Meritzbau and Hijokaidan and Incapacitants, uh, groups that were considered noise. Americans called all of that Japan noise. Other genres began to proliferate like harsh noise, ambient noise, power electronics. These are the kinds of things that happen in genre-making discourse. You need to, to make some, some category. You need to have a taxonomy and sub, make subcultural distinctions that have some social and sonic uh, differences embedded in them. But it was very hard to trace that back to this thing called Japan noise, supposedly made in Japan, which was called in Japan no, just noizu. Right? So um, not even a perfectly good Japanese word for noise, but noizu. So by the time I returned to Osaka and Kyoto to get uh, my preliminary field work done in 1988, uh, Noizu became famous in Japan, partially due to its fame overseas, which usually this kind of circulation is, is called by the term yakuyunyu. Yakuyunyu means reverse importation. And it, it can refer to things like when uh, a Japanese baseball star uh, plays for the Yankees, then a lot of attention is paid to that person. And, Japan's success is reflected in those kinds of things. So when a Japanese uh, uh, artist succeeds on the global stage, it's a, it's a fairly big deal. Um, and so something like noise, which is this very weird subcultural tiny little thing, uh, had, had, you know, it's powered, you know, magnified by the power of 10 when it returned to Japan as, as through the success of, of in the United States and bands like Sonic Youth uh, that, that were widely admired in Japan um, putting their stamp of approval on groups like the Boredoms and asking them to open for them on their Japanese tours and things. But meanwhile, uh, the idea of noise was not comfortable for its creators, and they denied that it was from Japanese culture. They denied that there was such a thing called noise. And when I went there to do my field work, this at first seemed like a problem for me. I thought, well, I came to find out about this, and people are telling me it doesn't exist. Um, there's no such thing as noise, or maybe you're taking this too seriously, or all you people get it wrong. And, th and then you start saying, wait, what people? How's it wrong? And asking those kinds of questions about, like, well, how did the circulation take shape? And, and so you're not asking the question, what is noise, and having someone provide you with an answer. But, but other kinds of things had to happen to understand the circulation and how this music took shape. And I found that there wasn't going to be a consistent genre called noise that I could fill in the blanks. But I was going to have to look at circulation and how culture uh, uh, was created through circulation. So the American underground imagined noise as a place... Of uh, 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 an underground place that was a product of Japanese culture, and they projected a lot of um, unexplainable things about the sound onto, onto this culture, believing that the grass was greener, the experimental grass was greener on the other side of the fence. And meanwhile, the Japanese were trying to stress the individuality of their work. It had nothing to do with Japan, and their noise was of themselves. And uh, sending tapes to the United States or to Europe or Canada was uh, necessary because no one would ever sell their music. And the only way they could get an audience was to jump over Japan. Um, so it was very ironic that it got sent back to them as Japan noise. And there were a lot of um, soul searchings and, and ways of trying to deal with it at the same time to be consistent and continue what you're doing. So it's not really a, a transcultural music scene either, right? It's, it's, it's an imaginary, it's a broken imaginary. It's a feedback loop that, that doesn't you know, hold everything together in some kind of container. And in that sense, it's different than what we might think of as a transculture or, or thinking of or tis, uh, transculturation or ideas of media convergence, convergence 
and adaptations of cultures where you would have um, um, uh, places of, of where people are coming together to express themselves or that there's an exchange, even though things are being exchanged. This feedback is more of a kind of destructive creativity and it reflects the violent effects of, of techno-culture and it's, it's, an, it's, a, it's an artistic representation of techno-culture. Not, it's not accidental, like someone being swept into a technocultural world accidentally becoming a cyborgian or something. It's, it's a very deliberate uh, way of portraying historical distortions. And I think that uh, they come out of this uneven transnational media exchange between Japan and the United States. So noise was born at this time when uh, Japan was known for its conspicuous consumption. Japanese were coming to the U.S. to buy all the Fender guitars. Uh, uh, Columbia bought... Uh, Sony bought Columbia Pictures, and there was a fear of invasion of Hollywood. Mitsubishi bought $2 billion share in Rockefeller Center. And meanwhile, you know, the irony of this is that America continues to, you know, this, to, uh, to uh, uh, occupy Japan. Um, there are U.S. military bases on Okinawa. The, the preferred nation status um, is continually renewed throughout this period, which in effect gives the U.S. power of negotiation over Japan's economic and global uh, development since the end of World War II. So it has this powerful uh, export economy, this media uh, uh, economy that's as powerful, uh, as I'm sure you've heard Ian talk about, as the United States. And yet the, the, the points of connection are very few. Um, and so it was very interesting that something like noise would become uh, uh, this thing that completed the loop of a reciprocity in some way, or that you can imagine cultural reciprocity through this media circulation. And at the same time, there's the contingency of that equivalence is just exposed uh, over and over through this, through this circulation as a disconnected network that somehow also reconnects and makes, makes a loop over and over. So um, let me talk a little bit about the media objects that uh, circulate. So I'll talk about um, recordings that in the early 90s. This is one of the early compilations of noise music. It's coming out of, of, of an American uh, noise uh, guitarist named Mason Jones. He, he helped compile this, and it's got two discs. One is, is the Japan side, and one is the American side, east and west. And the, that's the Japan disc. The, the American disc has, has horizontal red stripes. Um, and the inner cover makes this overt reference to the transnational history of commerce and the buried overtones of violence and power, this, um, this nationalist imaginary. But at the same time, uh, the liner notes uh, argue for an individualism, a unique representation of each artist's work that can't be matched. So they couldn't figure out, they say, a way to master this recording uh, because uh, there was too much variation from cut to cut the texture and emotion, and, and, and each artist has to be represented as included. And the notes conclude by warning that the volume levels on the CD are not typical of a mass market audio pr product. Please exercise extreme caution when auditioning this disc on consumer playback electronic equipment, but then ending with a con uh, contradictory demand to play loud. Right? So they insist on this paradoxical cultural logic that in noise, the source of the sound is distorted. The original culture or the original expression or person is distorted beyond recognition that they can't be recovered uh, back to an original form. But at the same time, it's this feedback of mediation uh, that, that makes it impossible to trade back, that produces something new that you can still identify somehow or break along the lines of culture. Um, so let me show you some other forms that circulated. And these are uh, some cassettes um, from the collection of the Generator Sound Art, which is a small cassette uh, uh, distribution in, in New York City in the 
uh, late 80s, early 90s. And um, cassettes were a big part of how this circulated. And part of what interested me about that was how much the discourse around cassettes uh, reflected the same kind of concerns that are around MP3 and digital circulations now in the sense of uh, portability, being able to jump over a media industry, being able to create a participatory democratic uh, situation. So much of what people were imagining was going to take place and what they created uh, was through that possibility. So these are the people who realized in the 90s and 80s the kinds of things that people claim are only possible now. And um, they did make uh, uh, circulations and connections through these things. They're also making something that's very, very hard to interpret or even access. So you, you, know, you had to unwrap all the duct tape that surrounded that one and hope that you didn't break the tape, or this one you know, is, 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 is in melted vinyl. Um, some of them are easier, you just unwind the string. But there's this uh, uh, object that, that becomes um, hard to understand. You, you didn't know where it came from. You made, all you could know is that it, the postmark said Japan. Okay, so having set that scene, I want to talk about how feedback creates, uh, is created in forms of electronic sound. So I want to um, play a couple of videos to show how feedback is used in noise performance. So uh, this first clip is, is um, an artist named Ikeda Keiko, whose uh, stage name is Timi Soara. And she sets up her gear here. Um, it's, it's very hard to see. I shot it in, with a not very good video camera in 2002 in Tokyo. Um, but I'll describe uh, what's happening here. She's setting up for her show. The show is uh, filled to capacity, which is probably about 75 people. And she has a two-by-four waist-high table that's brought up onto the stage. It's just a section of the floor. And she put all of these mixers and voltage converters and commercial guitar pedals and tape recorders and all this anonymous and homemade junk onto uh, pulling it out of a suitcase and, and assembling it on this table. And she plugs all of the uh, items together uh, in... At first, it looks like she's plugging them together in a line, the way that you might put a guitar through a line of guitar pedals and then have it come out to an amplifier. But at the end, instead of, of, the, uh, of the chord coming out into an amplifier, it comes back into the mixer so that you have a loop uh, going through the delay pedals and the graphic equalizers and, uh, and the distortion pedals, and it just builds on itself. So at the end of the chain, the output turns back into the input. The circle of pedals becomes a feedback loop, and... Uh, and she can control that cycle from within this. She also has a, a couple of other things on this. It's, it's not that pure, as I'm describing. It's not a purely closed feedback loop in this case. She has a, a sampler that she triggers as well. But uh, this is the basic a mode of production for noise music, uh, and it's the, it's the most consistent one, even though there are other ways to make noise music. So I'll just play you this, and... Um, one of the things I want to point out is the is sort of atmosphere of creation that goes on here, which is uh, the struggle with the technological environment. She's, she's in control, by and large, but it's a very unpredictable sound space, and she's working with the pedals to create this uh, changing loop of feedback. So I'll play this about two minutes of this.
Okay. So I'll play you another example of something else in a minute. Uh, so this noise is made with these um, individual effects. They're called uh, pedals. If you play guitar, you know what I'm talking about. But they're often called effects. I'll show you a picture of, of one. This is made by a friend of mine uh, whose group is called Defectro. He, has a, uh, he, he, he makes this uh, thing called the uh, Mu Oscillator Fuzz. Uh, and an effect usually alters the sound, like I said, of, of something like a guitar that you know, plugs into it. So you put in uh, a guitar sound to a distortion pedal, and it comes out as a distorted guitar sound, or, or a wah-wah pedal makes a wah-wah guitar sound, or a delay pedal makes a delayed guitar sound. Um, but in this case, the individual effects don't affect the sound. They are the, so- the source of, of, the sa- of the sound. And the entire pile of gear feeds back on itself. So you have this total circuit, um, and the circuit is fed back into itself in a repeating loop. So, you know, I think people know what the sound of feedback is like. You hold a microphone up to a speaker and you get uh, feedback. And usually the, tro- the trope, sonic trope, is, is being out of control. So if you think of like a high school principal in, the, in a teen movie, goes up to the microphone and you hear some feedback and you know that this guy doesn't have control uh, of the situation. So it's that kind of a, a feeling of being out of control. And, um, and, and when you have a cycle with all these elements in it, it's very unpredictable. It's very hard to control. And, and it's, it's the cycle regenerating itself to make the conditions change. So uh, in many ways, this uh, whole system is iconic with the uh, circulation of noise between Japan and the United States. And in the, in the same way that it's not a linear process where noise comes from Japan and goes to the United States or, or, or comes back in some, in some cycle, even a back-and-forth cycle, a dialogue, dialogic cycle or or something like that, you instead have this cycle that, that is uh, contextual, like networked, and based on the interconnection of all the individual effects. So the change in one pedal of an individual uh, part of the system can change the entire circulation, but at the same time is constantly being changed by it. So it's the paradox of experiencing a global media circulation as an individual in a local context. On one hand, you have the vision of a total self-contained system, which you can call noise music or feedback loop. And on the other hand, you have all these unpredictable connections, which are the things that really matter to change the sound between these individual effects. So in that sense, circulation is uh, more than just a model of distribution, which is how we often think about it as through the circulation of currency or newspapers and so forth. Now we use it to cover uh, other aspects of exchange and distribution for capital and media, as I said, but also for intercultural relationships, passive migration, people moving, the flow of information and ideas. So really this coming out of the work uh, uh, spearheaded by Arjuna Potterai, uh, who, who conceived of global circulation as a network that flows through all these multi-sided transactions of the contemporary world where goods and people and ideas are moved across time and space. But the shift that's happening in this conception is uh, is, is, a, is a somewhat challenged by that uh, idea and, and challenging of that idea, where you have uh, uh, the idea of a movement of people and commodities from one culture to another. Instead, you have the idea of circulation as a, as a performative constitution of collective agency. And I'm taking this from uh, Lee and Lapuma, Benjamin Lee and Edward Lapuma. And, and uh, thinking of circulation itself as a cultural process with its own forms of abstraction, evaluation, and constraints. So for those of us who think of globalization through music uh, beyond something like world music, right, the reevaluation of circulation has great significance. Circulation isn't just movement, but it's a kind of performance and process in which uh, uh, 
the circulation itself mediates the cultural meanings of things and places and people. So you have something like Japan noise coming out of the circulation that doesn't necessarily exist outside of that. Um, at the same time, you can't really call this global. Uh, uh, it's not something that you can see as communicational per se, and it's hard to perceive in terms of dialogue. It's full of uh, what Anasing calls friction, missed encounters, clashes, misfires, and confusions, things that break down uh, constantly and yet continue. They don't include everything that they're supposed to and uh, that don't always endure their own, the erosion of their own rep repetitive cycles. So at the same time, they go on even as they fail, even though it becomes impossible to define something or even though there's a, a mis... Uh, a misconception in the attribution of a culture like Japan to something like noise, it still contains that meaning and it still has to uh, uh, be dealt with even when it disconnects and unfolds on itself. So popular music is a good way to look at the way commodity cycles uh, create and recreate the power of the gift in a global circuit. Uh, the recordings pick up the effects of their different contexts as they travel. We uh, give meaning to them as they circulate and then eventually we arrive at the threshold of the capacity of this thing, like a recording, or the idea of noise, or a performance to hold the idea of culture. And I think that that's one of the great contributions of this, of this music as, as both a recording and a performance style. So I want to talk about the performance style, too, because there's a sort of radical disjuncture between the way people experience uh, the media of noise and the, and the, live, the intense liveness of its uh, performance style. So I'll show you this clip of a group called Incapacitance, uh, performing at a small club called Bears in Osaka. And uh, Incapacitants are a duo of Mikawa Toshiji here on the right and uh, Kosakai Fumio on the left. And they're legendary for this intense energy in their performances. And Mikawa will start trembling and uh, uh, stabbing his pedals with sharp gestures. And Kosakai will start to shake and double over. And his body will be racked with spasms. And, they, and, and then eventually they'll collapse and all of the gear will be just, you know, broken apart by the overwhelming power of the sound. So let me show you that. Um, this is in Osaka, and there, there's, there's, you know, this place only fits you know, 30 people. It's a legendary place, one of the most important places in Osaka for this music. And you'll see people are, are basically sitting down because it's impossible for people in the back to see uh, if, if they don't. Um, so this is taken from the back. It is. It is. It's funny music, and and they, you know, there's a there's a funniness uh, to their performance, and there's, you know, these are very ordinary people in many ways. Uh, Kosakai works for a government office, and Mikawa famously works for a, a bank, and uh, 
is the coach of his children's soccer league and are very, you know, at the same time they come on stage and they're transformed by the power of this music. And uh, what they perform is this feedback of being overwhelmed, like shuttling before, uh, but, you know, between being a performer and someone who experiences the effects of performance. And that feedback loop emerges with the sound out there and in here in, in the body. And so in that sense, it's not an expression. It's not a cultural expression of, of like a, a person's voice or an improvisational um, uh, discovery, but it's an inward experience of the whole system. And uh, Mikawa will say, when, quote, you know, this is what he told me about the performance, when, you will reach boiling point, and then when you build up sounds, you won't be able to tell what's what. So I think what's important about not knowing what's what in, this, in the space of technology is, is a very important aesthetic uh, uh, stand, standing point for, for Japanese noisitions who have this techno-cultural subjectivity that reflects the you know, geopolitics of, of the feedback between the United States and Japan around these uh, technologies. And uh, I'll skip to talking about some Americans here because I want to say that, that this... The reason that this circulates is because it, it isn't specific to Japan. It's because those kinds of technological anxieties and, and, and problems about being overwhelmed with um, media and technology are, are things that, that are experienced in many different in, uh, post-industrial societies. So this is a guy from this area, Dan Greenwood, who has a group called Diagram A. He's in Northampton. Um, and this is one of his CDs that is, uh, has the subtitle here, Resist the Machines. So uh, I asked him about the paradoxes of saying something like resist machines when all of his performances depend so much on this electronic gear. Uh, he insisted that he's not anti-technology, and he said, I'd be living in the woods if I was. Um, he does live in Northampton, but uh, he said, I do see it as a bad thing that will ultimately destroy us. Even so, it's so much of my life that I don't think I can step away from it. I rely on it so much. I guess that's why I put that resist the machines text in there. I guess it's kind of a ridiculous statement to make, but that's why that's in there, because it's hard for me to feel like I could pull away from technology. So it's almost like I have a fantasy of a world without it, or that it's going to damage us somehow. So noise boils down that destructive electronic sound of feedback to distill that sense of overload out of the technology. Uh, Hiroshige Jojo of Hijo Kaidan, one of the most famous groups, made he, he uh, heard that there was this musician as a, uh, uh, as a child named Jimi Hendrix who had um, smashed guitars, and he went out and he looked for the Hendrix records and he found it, and then he said um, he was really disappointed because he heard it and it was really normal music, except for that moment at the end when Hendrix smashed his guitar. So he just made a tape of all of the smashing moments and edited them together into what he called the high-tension scenes. So he made a tape of all the noise moments. So these are the kinds of things that people did with media to start thinking of a music that might be just all noise, musical destruction. And so they also uh, uh, brought this onto the stage. It wasn't purely sonic. This is uh, Hijo Kaidan in 1980. They threw fish guts at the audience. Uh, they peed on the stage. They broke the, the floorboards. They attacked the audience with fire extinguishers. And it became very hard for them to get uh, gigs. So part of the reason that the recording circulation became so important was because of their uh, very destructive um, uh, performances. So this is the group of Hanatarash. Uh, Hanatarashi means snot nose, uh, featuring Taketane Ikuo and Yamatsuka Ai, who later became the lead singer of the Boredom's very important experimental musician. But they only got to play two or three performances. This one's very legendary. Um, before, but the tales became canonical. Uh, in this case, uh, I destroyed a Tokyo club, uh, Toritsukase Loft, in 1985 with this abandoned backhoe. Uh, David Hopkins of, 
uh, the labeled public bath told me, quote, he didn't know how to drive it, so he put the shovel up, and the whole thing tipped over. It was leaking gasoline out of the floor. The audience held him down because he acted like he was going to light fire to the gasoline. And I remembered the chaotic event in vivid detail. He said, we got on this thing and rode it, bang, through the doors of the hall. It'll spin a full 360 degrees. So we were spinning and driving through the audience, chasing them around, when suddenly there was this wall we spun into and opened a rather large hole in. The wind came blowing in. The shovel part got stuck in the hole. And trying to get it out, we pushed a switch that started the tractor tipping up like it was about to go over backwards. Nobody got hurt, but it cost us several thousand bucks to pay for all the damage. We'd also broken the backhoe and had to pay for that. The place was all concrete walls and no windows. We smashed everything. But ironically, this performance, uh, because it consisted of smashing unamplified things, it wasn't very loud. So no one remembers the sound, and the sound of the audience probably screaming in terror would drown out the noise. The noise. And he said, uh, he commented, remembering, it's amazing, really, how little sound comes out of something you're smashing with all your might. So it took like a mediated uh, form that people could listen to 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 uh, make sense of this, but at the same time, you needed this kind of an image or this kind of a story to uh, help people imagine what was going on. And they didn't know how to imagine what was going on, except that something in Japan was broken. People, they needed a cathartic experience. Maybe the society was going to break down. And so in that sense, it is a place for uh, dystopian future, uh, imaginations of social apocalypse uh, and de-evolution. Uh, Marilyn Ivey described this space in the 80s as uh, in which Japan represented... Uh, quote, a nation space of excess operating as the nameable supplement of the United States, where Japan's modernity stood for a loss at the heart of American self-perceptions, where the Cold War is over and Japan won. But by the time this music really makes it to the United States, it's apparent that this victory is uh, very contingent. And uh, the idea of Japan as, as number one is feeding back uh, uh, onto itself a, a lot. So what can they be number one in? Well, maybe noise right at this point. So uh, the idea of a culture starting from zero is very powerful here. The idea of a culture recovering from traumatic events uh, like World War II and, and the explosion of nuclear uh, weapons. Um, and then what do you turn to? Well, you turn to a, a you know, apparently neutral uh, field of technology, um, transistor radios, Walkmans, FM synthesizers, uh, technological fetishism. And so this uh, Japanese uniqueness as a technological domain is part of the of the of the uh, the milieu that that noise can emerge that can, noise can emerge and, and expose the social dissolution that's under the surface. So um, at the same time, it's not really a political project, uh, and most of what um, people thought about th these uh, meanings came from the United States and the projection of of cool Japan, Japan's gross national cool, back onto. Uh, Japan by Americans, investing in, in the Japanese uh, perspective. So if this feedback spun out of millennial Japan, its cultural particularities were adapted very much to, to global dreams coming from uh, the United States and concerns with technological subjectivity. So um, I want to conclude with uh, a discussion of Asami, uh, Masami Akita, uh, who's... Uh, released a lot of records under the name Meritzbau. And if anybody knows anything about noise, does anybody know, just out of curiosity, the name Meritzbau? Yeah, so it's a pretty good chunk, like 20% of you or 25%. And, you know, when people know, when, if I ask, do you know any other noise musicians, how many people could raise their hands? So then it gets down to like four or five. And, you know, if, if it starts to be more than five, if you know more than five, then, you know, you're special. <laughs> but lots of people know about noise, right? And they know about noise, and they know that there is somebody 
called uh, Meritsubao, who, who is the, the guy who makes noise in Japan. And uh, it's partly out of the uh, incredibly prolific production. He, he has over 350 or 400 albums at this point as Meritsubao, almost all of which were distributed internationally and sold most of their copies in North America and Europe. So this doesn't include his 50-CD box set, which is called the Maris Box, not to mention his collaborations with many foreign artists. And so the labels are, uh, are, are very varied that release this. It's all conceived of as noise, but it comes out on labels that specialize in uh, music concrete or electronic music, free jazz, heavy metal, and lots of different subgenres. So all of these recordings were released on non-Japanese labels, very diverse and then they were, had to be re-imported. If you wanted to buy it in Japan, you had to buy the import uh, from the United States, which made it more expensive. And so there's all those kinds of aspects of, of cons- sort of consumer feedback. And the anonymity helped the sourceless circulation, too. Like, who was this person? Um, you don't see any images here. And Meritzbau itself is a modernist reference to the work of Kurt Schwitters, who had a house called Meritzbau that was made of junk, and it was eternally under construction. And Akita compares his endless creation of recordings to uh, uh, this kind of production of junk, like a junk house made of the overflow of mass media, to hear all this music that's coming out and turn it into noise. Here's a picture of him. He describes himself as the Dadaist of the Danchi, which refer to these block-like, self-contained, new town, like sort of housing projects, like a suburb projects that symbolize the violence of Japan's mid-century urbanization in which post-war cities were destroyed and rebuilt, reconstructed, and torn down and built over again in this loop of um, construction state. So this uh, idea of the Danchi aestheticizes the destructive process of industrial development, and he says the Japanese public became voyeuristically detached from this. So he's written a few books. He's, he's a very... Um, uh, a prolific writer, and, and he's written a few things about this, uh, um, about this time period when he said Japanese began to aestheticize being out of control. And at the same time as it, it was a futuristic development, it starts to represent this once hopeful future that's already rotting, like just a few years after it was built. So it's already a symbol of the collapse of this industrialized landscape. And at the same time, it symbolizes the experience of being frozen in, in capitalism. So he he says it's a way to make audible the excesses of Japanese uh, capitalism by freezing its crisis in sound. So he says, um, noise was an idea about capitalism, the overload of capitalism. For me, it's a consumer sound. If capitalism goes into catastrophe, it freezes the consumer. And in the late 80s, Japan was frozen with consuming, you know. So when I made noise in that period, well, I'm not a salary man and I'm not consuming with money, but it's the same idea. It's very difficult to escape from our system. We're already involved in the system. So if I can put something into the system, I want to change its direction, at least in a private way. So he uses this idea of Japan and its involvement in in global capitalist circulation to evoke the personal space of being overloaded by mass media Um, and then the evolutionary use of destruction in both observing and in making art and so he's, when he's making uh, all of these records, he, he's really thinking about how much he can, uh, he can consume and what he then is going to produce from it. So he calls it a gastronomic cycle of, of creative destruction in which local sound sources like music and, or, or Japanese culture are digested and it always comes out as noise. So he says noise is everywhere. Noise is at the border of every music. It's free to go everywhere and it can mix everything. We eat many different musics and make noise. It's an overload of information. 
Any music can be noise if I make its volume overload. I don't know what it is, but this overload feeling is what makes it clear for me, so I'm making this feeling produce. Akita evokes this creative destruction through the social effects of consumption on the individual, which, as Raymond William reminds us, historically carried the unfavorable meanings to destroy, to use up, to waste, to exhaust. Everything made in the commodity cycle, he reminds us, is made to be broken. Through its destructive feedback, noise always cycles back to alert us to the critical status of the human in a technological system. David Harvey considers this type of creative destruction as part of modernist aesthetics, which isolate individual consciousness as a resistant force against the incursions of technoculture. As Harvey describes, technological modernity was creatively destructive in its sacrifice of individual difference to the totalizing forces of industrial progress. But modernism also created the possibility to be destructively creative, tearing down older models of culture to create new modes of cultural subjectivity. So those two things, creative destruction and destructive creativity, are always in relation to one another. They can never be separated. Uh, So in that feedback, the only path to affirmation of self was to act and manifest will by freezing time in in the submerged forces of humanity in this technological space, even if the outcome is always bound to be tragic, to, to, to bound up to the loss of control and the collapse and destruction. So um, just to conclude with one last story, I want to talk about a film that came out um, more recently in 2007 uh, called Eli Eli Lema Sabatstani, which is the, the last words of Jesus on the cross, why have you forsaken me? My God, why have you forsaken me? And it turns out that noise has the power to cure humanity. In 2015, the world's population is threatened by the rapid spread of a virus called the Lemming Syndrome. The disease makes people want to kill themselves and has begun to spread through cities across the globe. Eight million people have died already in the United States and three million Japanese so far. Japan has a 38% unemployment rate and scientists and government agents are helpless to stop it. A young woman, Hana, that's here in the blindfold, Miyazaki Aoi is the actor, she's been infected and she's filled with feelings of despair and misery that are symptomatic of the disease. Meanwhile, Mizui and Asuhara, who are played by the actor-musician Asano Talanobu and Nakahara Masaya of uh, Violent Onsen Geisha, they're living far from the city, having abandoned fruitful careers as famous noise performers to pursue their private inventions, uh, creating new instruments from abandoned junk and experimenting with sounds in a rustic country house. Hana's grandfather locates the hermits with the aid of a detective, learning that somehow their innovative experimentations with noise may hold out the possibility of an antidote to the suicidal depression brought on by the virus. In a desperate attempt to cure her affliction, Hana's grandfather and the detective bring her to the noise compound. They drive to an open, grassy field overlooking the ocean, where Mizui stands with a guitar, a pile of electronic effects, and several mysterious spinning instruments at the edge of a clearing marked by four gigantic speakers. The grandfather strides across the grass, pleading, hurry, we're almost out of time. The afflicted girl paces, dressed in black, shielding herself from the sunny day with a black umbrella. The noisician blindfolds her and walks her to stand in front of the enormous PA system. You may not be able to see, he tells her, but you will know the right place when you find it. As he begins to strum the guitar, she stumbles out into the field until she's standing directly between the four monolithic speakers. Mizui leans down to adjust his equipment and begins to play. For several minutes, the camera pans slowly around the blindfolded Hana during the noise performance, and the landscape begins to blur in the blast of sound. The noise surrounds her, and we see flashes of memory inside a club, a pyre burning on a beach. 
which turns out to be Mizui, who eventually succumbs to the lemming syndrome and dies. So she collapses on the grass and is, and, and is purged through the noise. But later, Mizui writes her a letter that says, if you want to keep your will to live, you must return again and, and go through the noise again. Right, so Japan Noise tells this uh, John Henry story of, of, of human relationships with the machine, a, uh, a man bound in battle with a machine that uh, uh, always struggles is a moral narrative uh, that ends with uh, a specific kind of technological uh, subjectivity that that's absolutely divides the human from the machine, and the man-machine always dies with the hammer in his hand. So living through that failure over and over again, the noisitians expose the ruse that technology frees mankind. They show how a mechanical society feeds human energy back into the machine, um, and the aesthetic mechanisms, all this obsolete analog junk, even uh, the cassette, which is still the, one of the preferred uh, modes of, of media for noise, the malfunction of these, uh, of these tools, the performance of, of being overcome by mechanical breakdown, are all attempts to mark this pain and struggle of being human in a dangerous technological world. So noise drove electronic music crazy. It embodied the creative use of technology in Japanese productions like the Sony Walkman, personalized robotic friends and pets, and the database culture of otaku consumption, which is an extreme fan, right? Um, Noisitions fed the energy of technoculture back into itself, hoping to overload the same thing, uh, the whole thing. Um, In their destructive performances lay a romantic dream of pure experience and the promise of some original self in the rubble. But in that sense, it's, even though it's this hyper-romantic, modernist um, attempt to, to show this uh, struggle and to convince people to become conscious of it, it's not a radical vision for a future society, or is it, nor is it a nihilistic embrace of the end times. It's invested in the possibilities of individual survival, if not expression. So it exposes this adaptive feedback between humans and machines as a cycle of creative destruction. And so in that sense, I want to just conclude by saying that feedback, the idea of feedback, is just like media itself, something that lies between, or that is the between space, between things, people, ideas, and feelings. It enacts those movements that attract our attention as we watch things change, and it characterizes our desires for the future. So feedback is a form of technological experimentation with the terms of global culture. And once we recognize that we're always experimenting with culture rather than receiving it or producing it, we have taken the first steps towards acknowledging the technocultural effects of these experiments that are already at the core of a new global culture. Thanks. Thank you very much, David. I'm going to join you up here for the, uh, for the discussion. Um, often what we do is pass around a microphone, but I'm going to say let's try without the microphone to try to encourage more cross-talk and uh, hopefully feed the conversation. Uh, I have some questions, but I'll save mine, and let's start out with things from the crowd. Who would like to start us off? Um, you can start off, yes, please. And, and I'd ask you to introduce yourself. And actually, I, I neglected to introduce myself, I should probably say. I mean, probably most people know, but I'm Ian Condry. I teach here in Comparative Media Studies. Uh, I'm a cultural anthropologist, and I'm, I organize the MIT Cool Japan Research Project, and we have talks and seminars and cultural events uh, a couple times a semester usually. Uh, it used to be related only to Japan, but we're expanding out, and the theme is media, popular culture, globalization, uh, and issues like that. Uh, and so this event is co-sponsored by MIT Cool Japan and Comparative Media Studies, uh, 
And that's why we're able to have David here. Thank you. What a wonderful talk. Oh, thank you, Brad. Really great yeah. stuff. Uh, so let's open it up for discussion, uh, please. And, and ask you to introduce yourself. Uh, hi, I'm Xinhua Li. I teach media studies at Dazen College uh, in Wellston. Mm-hmm. So thank you for the great talk. And uh, um, it's very gripping, especially the video of, you know, this performance. This guy passed out, like, had a spasm that struck me. He, like, is totally odd. And I have to say... I um, personally, I, I'm not a fan of this music, this noise. I wouldn't say it's music. I mean, I don't know. It depends how you find music. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, and when he passed out on the ground and I heard people laughing, I was laughing myself. Sure. And I think that was like my desperate attempt to try to make sense out of this. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm just wondering, like, um, if the um, noise, as you claim, is the extreme expression of consumerism. Mm. Why can't a normal majority of consumer, like me, I think I represent the middle mainstream consumer, right? Mm-hmm. So why can't I appreciate noise? <laughs> and what, like, what stands in yeah, What's wrong with you? <laughs> this is great. <laughs> I mean, so, like, if you said uh, noise is at the, it's at the edge of every kind of music. But why, uh, you know, a person really... So these are all things that Meretzbao said, Masami Akita said. Right, I, I somehow I mean, you know, agree with that. But the thing is, what prevents a normal consumer from, from perceiving the real of the noise, uh, of the of, of consumption? Like, you know, like I feel there's something revolutionary that's embedded in this noise, the mm. culture of noise, uh, and it brings us to the end. But it's, right, but it's kind of hard to relate to, I, right? Sure. Okay, well, I'll start with just that last part of the question. You know, why can't you relate to it? And you can't relate to it because, because it's, it's deliberately rejecting so many of the, of the tools that we use to relate to musical expression. And that's the point, right? That you would take something that, you know, ordinarily you need harmony, you need uh, lyric, you need uh, rhythm. And uh, even when you don't have those things, you have some sort of cultural frame to interpret it. Okay, well, this sounds like this because it's ritual music. Or this sounds like this because it's not just music. It has this other context through which to interpret it. But this is a context of music. It's in a club or it's a recording. You buy it $16.99 on a CD. And then you expect uh, it to conform to these things. And that's what the goal is, to, is to confront those expectations. It's a very basic modernist avant-garde attempt to confront the senses. So it works, right? In that sense, it works on you. Um, because your question is, why is this music, or why uh, I don't like it, but I'm supposed to, I must, uh, I don't have any access to it. And, and it, yeah, I mean, and, and I, I hear that sometimes. Like, uh, I think, I, I always wonder why. Why do you wish you liked it? Or can't, I mean, so the thing is, it's, it's, it's actually very hard to like, and it's meant to be that way. And I think that that is partly what makes it circulate as it does, because there's that desire to connect to something that's very, very hard to connect with. And then there's the desire to attribute it to something outside of oneself and, and to say, well, I'm, look, look, I'm connecting to this very difficult to connect to culture that's out there. That, um, or or the, the fact that I can make this and someone in Japan makes it shows us something about the possibility of overcoming. There's all sorts of fantasies that can come out of that. And those are the fantasies that accrue to art and music in the Western Enlightenment context in the first place, the transcendent, sublime qualities, that there is no way to define it, that there is no way to have anything other than an individual experience with it, and that anything else is just imposed, right? And so that, that noise promises us all those things that music uh, ha- don't have, that music doesn't have anymore, right? That uh, the possibility of having a pure relationship with it, noise is giving us that. So the, the fact that someone can say, well, I know I don't like it, is very rare, right? We, we don't have those kinds of experiences that, that much. We're always 
you know, it's always contingent on something. Well, I like it, but only because it played over and over when I was a kid, or I hate it, but that's only because my ex-girlfriend listened to it, or, you know, there's all sorts of things that are personal to it. And this way you can say, I don't like it as a substance, I don't like it as a thing. And that is very special, you know. Let's get Nancy first, yeah. Hi, I'm Nancy Bain from Comparative Media Studies. I'm a professor at Microsoft Research. Um, so I had a couple of thoughts in listening to great talk, really one thing I was thinking about was I've done work with Swedish musicians and, and similar questions of sort of globalization, and they also say, oh, what we're doing isn't Swedish. Mm -hmm. And even though it's perceived from the outside as very Swedish, and you've got magazines writing up the Swedish thing, right, they're like, oh, this isn't Swedish at all. So I think that's a really interesting parallel. <laughs> and then the other thing I was thinking about was my friends road tripping to Chicago to see Einstein's and the Neubauten mm -hmm. in 1985, and then playing, I think, the Club Metro and sawing up airplane parts and mm -hmm. starting a small fire and having to cancel the rest of their American tour. Yeah. Which is making me wonder to what extent was this a global thing where people were feeding off each other across cultures, and to what extent was it a Japan thing? Yeah. And that kind of cultural flow. Great. Well, I don't think it's a Japan thing. And I don't think it's a global thing. But I think that groups like Einstein's and Neubauten had a big influence on, on this scene. So although, what's the, what's you know. What's the word again? What's the name of the band? Einstein's and Neubauten. Yeah. Okay. And they were a German industrial band. And as you said, they, they did a lot of destruction of machines. There was a lot of other stuff like Throbbing Gristle, SPK, uh, groups like um, Survival Research Labs in the United States that were part of a, an industrial art scene um, that brought a lot of the same issues, like really to, to the fore. And um, so, you know, the, the, the fact that there are artists in Germany or artists in the United States or artists in Osaka and artists in Australia that do this doesn't really make it global, though. So there's that question of, like, well, what well, is... It, it helps so us with... We use with, that word, though, yeah. to say if it's in three different places, well... Then it's global. Then it's right. global. So why yeah. do you want to say it's not Well, global? I want to say it's not global because I think that what happens with Japan noise is that it's characterized so much by the United States-Japan relationship and all the contingencies of, of the technological and imaginary relationship between, that even people in Germany or Australia when they're thinking about Japan or thinking about it through the lens of American perceptions of Japan. It's so heavily filtered uh, and that representations of Japan are predominated by American, of course, because of, of that post-war history. So in that sense, it's, 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 it's always reflecting on that United States-Japan relationship, even if it's a global network. So there's representational issues, there's network issues, then there are like, there's the musicians and the music stuff that happens in all these different places. Um, at the same time, it's not a Japan thing either, right? Because these issues and, are, and the concerns are things that, that the Germans are feeling. And, and, but for the uh, Americans, it's, a, it's important that it was a Japan thing. It right? was for these, and, for these, for the yeah. Japan people, it's important that it's not a Japan thing. Yes, right? yeah. Kind of and that's, that was the deep irony that got me started on, mm -hmm. on wanting to pursue it. And, you know, it's, it's one thread of, yeah. of the conversation. There's, you could have done it the other way. You could have gone to Sweden and, and, and Austria. People are always saying to me, why didn't you include X or Y from... You know, from is this a big scene in Norway, or they, you know, what, what about those guys? <laughs> this is an ethnography, you know. So I have, I also have that uh, constraint. Yeah. Uh, but 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 you also said something about Swedish. Let me like, like say, so the thing about you know, people saying um, it's not we're not wanting to say it's a Swedish thing. That is uh, you know is part of the of the of the global media circulation in which. Uh, uh, everything that comes from a, from a smaller nation has to be characterized that way, and then people have to deal with that with that problem over and over. That's true with art scenes and media scenes, and and, and you know so much of what comes out of, of places like Sweden or Japan is is 
is coming through the lens. Let's say anime is a perfect example of this. You know, something like it has to be when it's it's only when we call it Japanimation or when I was a kid, it, you know, we didn't know it was it was Japanese, and then we know it is. And so the the, the thing is, that what, well, is it Japanese or isn't it Japanese? It has a lot to do with the conditions of reception, what people force the creators to say, and then it, the content has to reflect some of those conditions. And you know, writers start to change. You know, the, their like Murakami Haruki is a good example of someone who writes away from. I'm from Japan. He has to do that, you know, and that's part of his success. But then still people are constantly referring to Murakami as someone who represents a Japanese identity in this very ironic way. So the circulatory construction is very powerful. Let's go up here, please. Uh, my name is Esther, Esther Gertishahin. I'm uh, studying anthropology and uh, film, uh, critical media in, uh, at Harvard. Uh, my question is, uh, so when uh, jazz music was first introduced to Japan, uh, I know that there were a lot of criticism about uh, the jazz produced in Japan is not being authentic. Mm-hmm. And what kind of feedback or criticism uh, is there in the, in the global world um, for this music? Yeah. It's a good question because authenticity is such an important frame. In Ian's book about hip-hop or in the Taylor Atkins' book about about jazz, those are the defining conditions of the circulation. And it's not so much in noise, and so it's an interesting difference. Um, part of the reason, I think, is because people are so uh, invested in, in newness and um, in the constant creation of newness that they don't have time to invest themselves in, or they don't want to invest themselves in a canonizing project. And things like hip-hop and jazz are very self-referential. They're constantly telling the story of the origins over and over. It's extremely important that you know it. to be. It's the first thing that you do. Whereas most of these guys started playing music because um, they were the, the they, their band broke up and they had a bunch of equipment left and they plugged it together and they started making it and then they found out that there was such a thing as noise and they didn't come through it through any kind of narrative and, there, and then there was nothing much to know uh, other than that there were other people that they could do it with. And um, so there are, on the other hand, a couple of stories that I have about, you know, con- conflicts around authenticity. So when you have someone like Meritzbau, who's so famous, if you do something that's like that one person, he's the exception to the rule, which is so interesting, because he, he makes so many things happen, but he also allows so many other things to remain undercover. But uh, somebody... Uh, so many things somebody, are you talking about? Making, in making the music, or, or just more generally? So like when you have somebody who takes the heat, essentially, uh, of representing the entire field, you can have all these things going on underneath, and, you don't, and the hierarchy doesn't come uh, because he, it's just the one person, and it never develops much further than that. Uh, they, it's like Jackson Pollock representing abstract expressionism. And who else is doing it? Or you have to be an art historian to know. So that one person t- comes in and fills that place, and then the burden of history just falls away, and all the activity and circulation that you know, can be very fruitful underneath that. And because, it's not, because he is a fall guy, and everybody knows that he doesn't represent the entire thing. But um, he is important enough that somebody took a photograph of his gear. And you can buy this stuff at like uh, Guitar Center, and bought, of, bought all of it and plugged it together in exactly the way that he had and um, went up and tried to do the thing. And he didn't sound like Meritzbub, but people, they're not, they're observing everything, right? So they, of course they have a narrative of authenticity. It just isn't the same sort of transnational one. It's, it's tied to particular people and their expressions. So, they, so that, that person was shouted down, you know, as, a, as an imitator. And then later became a fairly famous noise musician. It was like a bad experience, but he came back, he came back from it. So like, there are conditions of, of like good and bad and authentic and inauthentic. Who is that? Oh, well, I won't mention his name. You know. oh, I'll tell you later. Okay. 
You yeah. have to come to their session. <laughs> you know, I mean, there are, there are sensitive things about doing this kind of ethnographic. I mean, people confess things to you or like to you know, tell you things, you know. And that, that's because that's one of the only, like, uh, damage. I mean, people have told me to cover up their names and things like that, but most of the time, it, you know, that's, there are few embarrassing stories. That's one of the only ones. And I only mention it as an example, not to out anybody. Yeah. Let's go here first. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I'm Rodrigo. Uh, I'm a grad student here at Technology Policy. Okay. And I was wondering uh, if part of this cultural movement could have been an influence or influenced by the classical contemporary music. If there was any figure in Japan uh, during the 60s, mm -hmm. during the 70s, that could have been a reference for right. these young musicians in the 80s and 90s. Yes, it's another good question. It has to do with canonizing and history, and isn't there actually one after all? And uh, yes, there is a history of avant-garde music that could have related to this, and it's both in the United States and in Japan. But as I said, the, the, the way that I discovered people making this music was that they had made it already, and then they found out that there was this avant-garde stuff. And it's not easy to find, but it's not uncommon. John Cage music is a, is a good example. That's very powerful and important in both the United States and Japan. There's other kinds of electronic music that happened in Japan that sounds like this. There's a guy named David Tudor that I talk about in the book who is John Cage's uh, 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 partner in making this music. And he, um, he has systems that are very much like noise systems. And in Japan, there are people who you could say uh, made free jazz, music improvisation. You could tell that story. But what I found was that th these people didn't know about that stuff. And then, then they were being told. Uh, afterwards, you know, you, you know that there's this guy who did this, and they say, "Oh, okay." And uh, you know, I asked Meritzbau one well, of the first things I asked him that question. You know, did you know about Kaoru Abe, or or, or did you know about um, uh, John Cage? And he would say, like, "Well, you know, later I heard about them." You know, I don't know if that's true or not true. I mean, I can't tell you, but uh, I know that the, that the, that the the way people made this stuff in the first place was not in reference to that history. So that's, you know. But sometimes there is an indirect influence. Uh, I was reading the, the bio for, for this musician with the 300 records. Meritzbaum. Yeah. And he, he, he usually heard a lot. Just now? <laughs> Just now? Uh, yeah. yeah. He usually heard a lot of psychedelia. That's right. He did. Sure. So you could say that no one is free of the burden of history because they live in the, in, 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 a, in the world. And so that someone who hears, you know, Frank Zappa, and Frank Zappa was influenced by Varese, and therefore it's classical music. But, you know, it's not, you know, because the, the thing is that what someone likes doesn't determine what they do in, a, in every case. So there's that narrative that's super powerful in musical history because we have this notion of the genius that transmits to another genius, and that you have these paradigm shifts in which someone comes along and creates counterpoint and someone else comes along and creates this and this. And that's the progress of music through history. And the interesting thing about noise is it constantly denies that. And because it's so provocative, in doing that, the, of course, the immediate desire is to say, come on, you know, what were you influenced by? What did you hear? Surely this is like punk music is another one you could do. Surely this is just free jazz or electronic music or just these kinds of things. And yes, of course, it is uh, influenced by those things, and those things are all around. All right, let's go here. Um, uh, my name is Mike Bullock. I'm a, a uh, former and uh, video artist from Boston. And um, uh, pertaining to that, uh, about the relationship to history, um, it's you know, you're saying it's not completely free of, of uh, attachment to history, um, but it seems to me that the, the relationship to is the loosest 
uh, the, among any other in, in the history of improv of, of uh, sorry of, like underground music so it seems mm -hmm. to be the loosest because it's free or close to free from institutional frameworks like it's not there's no industry built around it like popular music's uh, and there's, there's not really an economy for it and it's not a, you know like an educational institutional framework of, you know like things like this that are the exception where now after X number of decades we're starting to talk about it um, in a scholarly way which is fantastic um, but because of that freedom from these uh, institutional frameworks it wasn't maybe not freedom from uh, but it was freedom to take what you want from where it's not people like like punk for example right. direct response to the rock and roll that came before it right. not really a direct response to other kinds of music whereas noise could be a direct response to music in general yes and the same and you could say similar similar things about for example free improvisation which might be more a response to jazz and free jazz it might also be a response to noise and contemporary electronic and mm -hmm. so forth um, yeah, so I, but I'm curious, with the, especially from the, the Japanese point of view, did you see that there was a, a more or less direct response? Because I know this crossover with like Japanese psych bands and other areas of, of Japanese rock. Um, was there a, like a more or less direct response to? Um, it's an interesting question, right? I mean, is there such a thing as right a music without history, right? Or yes. Or, 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 which, it, 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 if there is one, this is actually seems a pretty good right. candidate. Right. You know, it seems kind of impossible in a way because no matter, everybody's got some kind of history. It seems because it's like living room music in, in a way, and, uh -huh. then you can be, and not that it's less serious. It's totally serious, but at the same time, you can be a banker. And yet, our and our urge is always to make those connections, right? That there's yeah. somehow always that pressure. Right, and that's what I think is really valuable about noise. Not that it is free from history, or that it's the ultimate postmodern music that finally after all this time, separates from all of these things. It doesn't. Uh, it's not clean at all, and it's not uh, separate from those things. But it, that, it, that it enables us, again, to ask those questions, and that it, and it, and that it makes us, uh, reveals to us these things. And so today I focused on the things I thought it revealed about technological subjectivities, but I think it reveals a lot about, about other things, uh, uh, about the historical construction of genre, the idea of expression and creativity. Improvisation is a good example. Is this improvisation or not? Why wouldn't it be? Uh, and, then, and then there's the, the question of, can you just go to cultural relativism and say, well, we only call something something because uh, of, of, uh, of, of all the things that surround it. So jazz is jazz because black people played it. And, and then when some other people detach it from it, call it free jazz, and then it becomes free improvisation. You take the jazz out, you take the rates out. And all the contingent aspects of how music gets defined you know, shift. But then if you listen to the music and you hear all these connections, and then that, that asks us to, to look deeper into the music. So all of these um, falsifications and, and, and sort of false connections between genre names are, are, are the ways that people get into music and that the way that they, that they listen carefully and the way they start making their values. And noise um, asks you to go all the way in, right, without, and there's very little uh, for, for you to come to, up and surface for. So it's asking you, you know, can you do that, you know? And then some people are like, yes, I'm going to be a pure aestheticist. But for the rest of us, and I think it includes almost everyone interested in music, it raises all these other questions. That, that Those are the ones that we use it for. <laughs> and that's why we like it. And it's not just because we love to be blown away by noise. Sure. Uh, let's, let's go in the back, and then we'll come up to the front, too. Hi. We'll start with Sonny, and then we'll go to Aisha. Um, Sonny, no, you on. I'm one of the master's students mm -hmm. in the comparative media studies department. Um, so one of the things that interested me about the talk was that it definitely seems as though the, the social practice of noise fans is very much kind of set up around the secret society, and that it's, it, there's some value tied up in that status as being kind of a musical secret society. 
Um, but it seems to me as though there's been a development in pop music in the last few years that might complicate that. And that's the, the kind of rise in hegemony of the neo-dubstep movement in electronic dance music. So, um, sort of the, it seems like the secret society status of, of noise was very much undergirded by the fact that the sounds it was made out of were, by definition, marginal in popular music. Um, right. But now that you've got sort of people like Skrillex going around the world and, and becoming global pop superstars, really by playing atonal, mechanical, very abrasive, noise-like sounds, it, it seems to me that that might create sort of a crisis within the secret society of noise fans. Mm -hmm. That all of a sudden, you this definitionally marginal thing that they surrounded themselves with is part of the language of, of popular music. Right. And so I'm wondering, has there been a response to that? Has there been any reorientation of the, the social around noise? Is there kind of a, a, any resentment? Do they see this as, as an appropriation of their language? Or are they ignoring it? Do they see this as being in some way sort of in conversation with, with their genre? Yeah, well, it's a good question. I mean, I can't really answer it that well because it requires, you know, another ethnographic you know project to ask you know but but I, I i my sense is that they don't feel connected to dubstep or that they wouldn't consider it in the same area uh and that most of the time there where there are many many musics right like like uh like the most extreme forms of black metal and drone music like music on credit as i said there are so many things that relate to noise in some way that they could be threatened by or that they could be absorbed into industrial music history uh was uh, you know from answers and neubauten is very close in some ways so there's that question of, of, of uh, what, is, what does it mean to name something and try and separate it? And then what are the forces that are attempting to, to constantly... And so the idea of, a, of an avant-garde cycle in which you have some form that comes up and then uh, has to resist the weight of all the historical um, absorption. And then eventually, you know, punk falls in. They say, well, it's just a sellout. Or, and that was the idea from the beginning, you know. But then what, you know, noise has been successful in avoiding things like using a safety pin that can be co-opted as a symbol or something and that's stayed underground. There's all, there's obviously, there's a possibility of crisis. I, I have yet to see a noise concert that's more than a few hundred people. You know, I've yet to, to hear of, of noise uh, described as the next new thing. Uh, so, you know, I don't think people are too threatened about it, you know, so I, they don't see that, that uh, the, the question that you might, the, the other question that might be underneath what you're saying is, have people's ears changed? And has, you know, are they ready to hear noise or, you know, as music? And I, and I think, um, you know, the question, answer to that is you can answer for yourself. Like most people, I still think, I think a lot of people find dubstep uh, hard to listen to. But noise, you know it takes a very particular kind of person to go to it over and over, but buy it for a lot of money, which it used to cost money for this. <laughs> you want to follow up right on that one? I kind of want to ask about the difference between those two things. Yeah. Uh, it seems like there's kind of a disjuncture between sort of being in a noise scene, going to a show where the volume overload is so crucial to it, right. and on the other hand, buying it as a circulated media product, mm -hmm. even if you play it really loud in your headphones, right. even if you have a real sound system, that kind of thing. Um, is that, am I imagining that? Are there no. different sort of cultures of reception at play here? It's a great question. It, it, it's like one of the most important questions because it, it's how does a transnational media circulation form when people are not able to experience uh, the liveness of the, of the music? And so there's no gemba, right, for lots of people. They don't go into the place. They don't have a place. They, but then, you know, it's very important that they know about it and that they know about incapacitance. Um, I have a good video example for this, but I, I feel like I might disturb the flow if I played it. But um, let me first say, uh, and then we'll see if we play it. But uh, 
buying a recording and listening to a recording is a radically different thing. And I think the reason that noise uh, becomes a term and circulates as a term and, and people can imagine themselves as a culture is because they've made all the effort of making that connection between some kind of a live uh, music scene and a community, to imagine a community from that very isolated. This is something that happens in all popular music circulations, right? That most people who become punk rockers do it in their bedrooms well before they ever... Uh, can go into a club, and, and they, they're doing it in front of their mirror, they're doing it with their recordings, and all those self-making things. And they, they learn things, they listen to things before the internet, most of this, so they couldn't you know, get knowledge except for through listening and, and exchanging with their friends. And then they had to f- find some way to, to imagine that. So I talk about this in terms of liveness and deadness and the deadness of, 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 uh, of recordings, which are, are very different in some ways, but they, they share an aesthetic uh, of being overwhelmed in which the music can't be something you put on in the background. The music can't be something that you make food to or, or something like that. Um, and so that, there's a story of uh, one of the producers uh, of Noise. When he first heard the record, he came home and did what he always does. He put it on and he started you know, making his lunch or something like that. And you know, um, he said, I felt like my jaw was wired shut and then I felt like you know, a headache and I was like, when is the guitar going to kick in, or when is when's it, when's it going to change? And and all of his, you know, his his sense of of of, uh, of doing his everyday activities were violated by it. So it has to be a music that that can do that. And I think the recordings have been successful. And I spend some time in the book talking about how they do that with with the sound, you know, EQing and mastering it to produce certain kinds of frequencies. And again, it's like people want to have that experience. Like, is it more or less overwhelming than dubstep or many other loud musics? I mean. It's because people want that experience and they're willing to invest themselves in it. So I'm not, you know, going to say this music is, but uh, is 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 the purest uh, form of <laughs> of overwhelming music or something. Yeah. I, I just, can I just throw? It? I, I yeah. Say I find there's a lot of noise records that I find very easy to work to mm-hmm. and very relaxing. But sure. It wasn't, but it wasn't always that way. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's just this one guy, right? Yeah. If I'd interviewed you, I might have a different book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, just teasing. Uh, but, listen, Wayne, why don't you introduce yourself, and then we'll come up here. Yeah. Wayne Marshall. music over at Harvard right now. Okay, thanks, Wayne. Uh, we'll go here, and then we we'll get back to Asia, but we'll start up here. Thanks, Asia. Hi, my name is Florian Hecker. I'm teaching a course in the Soundless Artistic Medium here at, uh, at ACP at MIT. And um, um, in connection to what you've been saying about the... Um, um, Take these two fears: uh, the, the the record, the tape, the CD, and and the uh, and the live performance. When you uh, mention these legendary venues like Beers in Osaka or these these places like you just heard of, uh, yes, but, uh, unless they go there right. a couple of years ago, they, they couldn't have uh, witnessed um, witnessed it. I'm wondering um, with your upcoming book how you're dealing um, with all these nuances and particularities that are. Um, Together with the, with different bands, so like if you look at Madhouse noise, it's very different from what mm-hmm. Masona is doing or from what Incapacitants are doing, and and how um, how you're giving space to, to such um, particularities in in writing. Well, first you'd have to tell me what you think the particularities are, uh, because because the, are you talking about sound or are you talking yeah, about, about, sound? about sonic about sonic qualities and sonic particularities? Right. So that's one of the, again, it's like the, when we get to the question of like, what, well, what is it, right? One of the other ways that people didn't address it until your question is, well, what, what is it specifically that, about the sound that makes it noise? And then what are the differences and how can we talk about them? 
And, and I found that it was really hard to do that, you know. And so I didn't do that in my book. I didn't say, this is um, Mazona's sound, and this is, is Meritzbaud's sound, and here's how they sound different. I talked about a little bit about what people told me. And so there are some terms like harsh noise and ambient noise, and people can talk about some of the differences between them. I didn't find that, them, that they were the really important things in the, in, you know, to people, and that differentiating between Meritzbaud and Mazona wasn't all that important to the fans that I talked to or the musicians themselves. And so that I had to rethink what their relationship was. Because, of course, I expected to, to want to talk about those differences and to maybe do some analysis of sound. Because I'm an ethnomusicologist, and that's like the way we do it. Um, and part of the reason I liked this project was it made it so impossible for me to do all of those things that were like the bread and butter methodologies for, for uh, ethnography and, and, and ethnomusicology. And so um, you know, I know someone might be able to do that. You know, so I don't want to say it's not possible. Yeah. What about the people talking about the not maybe not differences between artists, but between spaces, clubs? Yeah, yeah, they do, and they do imagine things, and they do experience things too. So, I mean, I guess let, let, let me. Um, I don't want to sneak in my my example at the expense of any questions, but it's only a minute or two. Can I play another video? Okay, so I'm going to play this video because, it, but I think it captures something about like what I'm saying about the circulation, which is uh, really that that there is. Um, what happens with the liveness uh, is, is partly the, partly the one of the, my concerns in the, in the book was to not you know, subject, subjugate the media circulation to a live experience because it's so fascinating and so powerful and so significant that it would be very easy to spend all of your time describing these shows and then not to, to, to focus on the fact that most people never go to them or that they don't have those experiences. So what I, what I talked about was how the liveness of these experiences sort of bolstered the media circulation. So in this case, you have this um, performance, which is this group, Incapacitants, who I mentioned have been played before. And, you know, they never had a chance to go to the United States. And in 2001, September 12, 2001, they were booked to play a tonic in, in, in New York, and that didn't happen. And um, they didn't make it again until 2007 at this No Fun Fest, which is at the Hook, which is a club in Red Hook in Brooklyn. So um, one of the interesting things about uh, about what happened was it was the biggest noise show I'd been to at that point with 700 people and there were all these rabid noise fans that came from all over the place to see this group that they had only heard on recordings and, and what they wanted to do was show their knowledge right? Of, and that they, they got the sound so it's, the, it's this thing of saying like well I know what it sounds like and I like it and I'm here to show you that and how did they do that? Well they did it in a way that's very different than the way Japanese audiences would do it and um, their force of the audience sort of overwhelms what's happening on stage, even though incapacitants are very loud. So it's a really interesting moment because it's, this is like the years of like pent-up uh, fandom like pouring out onto like a wave onto the, onto the incapacitants. And they're usually blowing people away. The force is usually that way, you know. And you can kind of see they're a little unnerved by it. But I'll play you just a little bit of this video just so you can see. If you, you know, Google, which probably half of you are doing right now, if you Google incapacitants or you're looking on Flickr or, or YouTube for incapacitants, this is the show that will come up. And you could almost create a 3D reconstruction of this show from all of the, the, the cameras that are going off here. Um, so it's a very, very famous show, and, 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 and most people weren't there, right? Only 700 people were there. So then this becomes like you had to be there, or this is the one that shows, yeah, they're really real. And did you know that there are bankers? They had to reschedule the show because he, you know, he needed to wait for his holiday, you know? And yet, you know, look at this. This is insane, right? And so that, this circulates a lot.
Okay, sorry. I'll just show you a little bit of that. Sorry. It could go on for a while, right? But, I mean, uh, what, what, I, what I thought was really interesting about that moment was uh, that everybody knew that they were at this you know, very rare event. It was never going to happen again, and they were you know, ready to show that and crystallize all that listening you know, that they had been doing. And so it wasn't, it wasn't that moment of the liveness like suddenly appearing and shocking them like avant-garde music right, and blowing them away. Oh, I never thought that this could happen, and so it's blown my mind or it's blown away all my preconceptions about music. They had very strong conceptions about the music. They were ready to experience it, and they were going to show you you know, in their, in, their, in their way, that they were, they already knew what they were supposed to feel. Right? Let's get to Aisha, who's been waiting. <laughs> Please. Hi, Aisha. Uh, so I'm Aisha. I'm also a master's student here in media studies. And I'm, I'm going to throw like, two other questions. Okay. Is kind of the noise itself means something very, like, ambient for many people. Like, I mean, especially in a culture where we're surrounded and overwhelmed with noise on a daily basis. It's really interesting to see these artists taking a very particular kind of noise, which, as you mentioned, is like the margin of musical noise. Like, it's the moment of crashing the guitar. It's not the train pulling into the station. It's, it's like music itself that is turned into noise. And I mean, like, that's really interesting to me for one thing. And also, I mean, relating to other kinds of, like, like I, I like a lot of shoegaze, and it, it's also kind of overwhelming, but it seems overwhelming in a very different way, where it's just trying to, like, mush you into sound. This is very much like getting you to listen to, like, technical defaults that we would consider in other music. And so I'm kind of intrigued by these two things, because it seems like what's happening with noise is that, like you said, people are getting overwhelmed and, and drawn in, like, wholesale, and asked to concentrate on like distortions on very particular, very minute kind of distortions in a way that they don't get to, it's almost the opposite way in which they're overwhelmed in their daily life where it's like there's so much stuff you can't possibly listen to all of it. So I mean, I'm just wondering if there's that kind of like, like, like is there like an awareness that they're in contrast or like to the noise of daily life or is there that kind of statement about that or mm-hmm. is this just me reading into it? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's a great question. I mean, I, 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 I love these questions. And this is the questions that I asked uh, when I started doing this. And, and a lot of it has to do with, uh, you know, can you get someone to satisfactorily answer that question, right? And, and so um, there are people like Meritzbau who will say, yes, it's environmental or something like that. I mean, the, the interesting categories that you started with, right? They're the important categories for noise. Noise as something that does exist. It's in the world. It's the sound of the train pulling into the station. It's all the, the, it's the fan you know, that we don't want to hear, that, you know, make it as quiet as possible so, it, so you can hear my, the message of my voice, the stuff that interferes. And then noise as something that's not something else. Noise as not music or noise as not communication. Um, and then, you know, the, that you should escape from uh, the context of, of, of being overwhelmed by it because that's an affective response that we have to the things that we don't want. And, um, and therefore, like, to purify and distill that and create, call it a form of art might relate to all of those different areas. And I totally agree with you that it, it does in different ways. What do people say about it and then things like that? So there, there, I, I mean, there's also uh, many histories, as, as I'm sure uh, Florian and others would, would, would know, uh, in which you know, ambient noise is brought into music by others. Like, you know, and this is where it does relate to like John Cage and these kinds of other things. Um, and they could have used recordings in that way, and sometimes they do use field re- recordings in that way. It's a, it's a big mush of stuff. And so I would say all of the things, I could give examples of all of the things that you're observing, but what, most important to what 
uh, what I think I, I took away from the questions you're asking are, is the relationship between um, reflecting an environment and, and having something be a condition of expression, which is a, a huge uh, uh, sort of epistemological difference in music, that something either is of the world or is it of the, the self and that comes out of the self. And so I think that the, that the ambivalent relationship between those is another form of feedback in which you don't know. This, they're not saying this is my form of expression, that this noise comes from me. But they're not, also not saying this is just, you know, I'm making, like John Cage, you should listen to this and call it music, uh, what's around us, the noise that's around us. It's a very specific form of expression. You can see they're doing, they're doing it, right? They're not uh, asking you to attend to it out in the world. Yeah, if I could follow up, we'll get, there's more questions, but if I could follow up on that a little bit. It, you know, one of the things that strikes me about your talk, and I mean, I really like it, and, and this idea of feedback and circulation, that there's something important going on there and that it gives us a different understanding of culture uh, and of music, uh, or of sound at least, uh, that is really, is, there's something new and important there. Now, if I was going to push you farther, I guess one of the ways I feel is that you're really good with these metaphors, right? Yeah. And the metaphors are pretty, and, and we get sort of lost in them, and, oh, uh-huh. it's the feedback, oh, it's the circulation. Uh-huh. And, and so I guess my question is, because a lot of us are wrestling with these issues is how, you know, of method and analysis, right? right? And so you know, I, I get it where, and I, I, I agree with you, that so Potter, I had this idea of flows, right? So media or ideas or people goes, starts here and goes there, mm-hmm. and, and it's all split up. It's not just one singular globalization. That was what he's trying to do, and it was useful. But I agree. I mean, I looked at it in hip-hop. I said, that's not what's happening. Right. You know, it's not as if LL Cool J flows from Bronx to Tokyo, something else. People mm-hmm. are re-performing it. And so then I said, okay, so what it really is is about performance in spaces. But what you're saying is something very different, you know. Mm-hmm. That, and so for me, and also I guess for a Potterai, it would be there is something there, actually, right? That, and that in fact, when we think about culture, we think about what's Swedish, right, or what's right. Japanese, that, that there is a kind of origin, there's a thing, there's, there's something that has history, right? What's its connection to a, some kind of history, some kind of performance? Uh, so too with media, right? There's yeah. a text, there's a representation, there's... There's something that you can look at and say, that's the message. This is the information. Uh, and I get it how noise breaks down those categories. Um, and yet we always fall back and say, well, but who, who makes noise? And right. where do they perform it? And how much does it cost to go? Right. And where do I get the CD? And, yeah. and so all those things actually push us back into a kind of object, a thing, whether it's authentic or not, you know, whatever. But, but that there's something there. And so... My question is, so to the extent that, that feedback or circulation uh, is really what it's about, and I, I sort of like this idea that maybe there is nothing there and it's, it's the circulation of the thing that makes whatever, makes something, right? I mean, I don't know that it makes an object. How would that change our questions, I guess? Is there a way in which it, we ask different kinds of questions now that we're not thinking about an object or an image or an information or a message that needs to be decoded, uh, how do we change our question of, well, what should we even be looking at? Right. Um, I guess, and that's, that's what I'd be curious here, because I guess that would help me say, oh, it's not just a metaphor, you know, it's not just sort of a neat play on words, uh, yeah. but this, I could actually use this because I, could, I would look at things in a different way. That's what I'm wondering. Now, you having done this, yeah. right? What have you learned about trying to study something that's only in circulation and it's not so much even a thing that people can define? Okay. Uh, so studying circulation is impossible, right? You can't just be in circulation. 
Right. And That's what I'm yeah. Right. Exactly. So so the, the the thing isn't to say what really matters is the impossible, or what really matters is all the things that we don't know. But that's what people feel, right? And so what they do is, the way that I had to write the book is through all these particularities and answering those questions. Today's talk isn't about those particularities. The book does it, does it to some extent. But it's following threads out to show where they go and, they, and to show how, but after they break down, th- this is the difference between working from, uh, working in, which is the way ethnographies, right. you know, usually work, mm-hmm. and working out. You know, so it's starting with this idea of what if we take seriously the idea of circulation as a cultural process, and we follow it out, and we try and find where it comes from. Well, we, all we see is we, we, we start to move out, and we start to see it fragment in these directions, and the questions come in, the valid, crucial points come in, that this is related to Einstein's uh, and Neubauten or John Cage, or that this you know, also happens here, or that this course, there's a difference between live uh, experiences and recordings that is you know, different. And, and so I found that it, it is unsatisfying to follow that thread to some degree, because it asks us to, to take a methodology that leads us, um, instead of leads us to... to well, it's like you know, instead of a story of yeah. getting to the core, the essence of something, it's sort of the story of an attenuation away from yeah. something that never was there. Right. right, so I think noise isn't just metaphorical in doing that. That noise's job is to be this hub, and that the reason that, it, and, and when you follow the spokes out, that you end up somewhere different each time, and that for you to, to then get back would be, would, you, you realize, like, the forced nature of, of that. And so that it does that on so many levels that you see this thing as kind of, and, and you know, I don't want to get postmodern with it because I don't, you know, I think you could you very easily see, you know, see that as viral or look at these kinds of things. But I, I wanted to look at it methodologically. So I did do a very classic ethnographic uh, study. It's like what I did was, was go in and do ethnomusicology. When I started doing this work, I was, in, I was doing gamelan you know, ethnomusicology was a very classic uh, thing for me, and I was I was studying gamelan. It was in Java, and it was Javanese music, and then I went to gamelan, and then I went to specific Jogjanese gamelan, and then I went to the instrument I played, and then there was the structure that I could learn. All that stuff was there, and I didn't want to do that. You know, when I went to grad school, I decided, you know, this is all, like, written out already for me. And so I didn't count on the fact that there would be really none of that in this scene when I started it, but I think methodologically I just came into it and I did do all those things and I knew that I was going to get unsatisfying answers but I said, what if you do that? What if you look for the place of this? And you find there are like incredibly powerful stories of place and experiences of place to describe and talk to people about and show but that they come apart so easily when you realize like someone else's experience doesn't include that and they also are part of this. They're a very important part of it and some people will move to Japan and other people will never leave uh, you know, Lowell, Massachusetts, or, or whatever, you know. And so you have very um, disparate relationships. You have to make sense of them in some way. So is there, do I have a methodology for that? I don't, you know. And in some ways it was, you Well, that image you know, of following the spokes out for yeah. real is actually helpful. Yeah. I, I think that that is not the normal way mm-hmm. uh, of, of trying to get at yeah. the sense of something. Right. So right. I think that's pretty interesting. Uh, let's get first people who haven't had a chance, and then we'll get back to people who, who might want to ask their second question. But Stefan, you want to do something? That's a fantastic talk. Oh, thank you. Um, maybe, maybe this is connected to the... You should introduce session. yourself, though. So, sorry. Hi, I'm Stefan. I'm right having anthropology here at MIT. And, um, yeah, maybe this relates to the, the question of method and theory. And, and I really like the way that you, you, open the, you open the talk and sort of warrant the analysis by looking at the feedback, kind of the closed circuit, and then... Make, make that kind of into a metonym for the way that you want to think about circulation, right? Um, so then, I guess, one of the method ethnolo- ethnological questions is, 
what kinds of metonyms do the people themselves right. you speak with use to talk about their own sociality? Yeah. Are things like, you know, there's, there's, there's a gender question sitting here, right. Maybe, right? Yes. So what kinds of images and stories do they use to sort of narrate their own sociality? And how do they think about categories like gender or location or any of those other things that you know, might be our analysts' categories mm -hmm. that we want to be kind of agnostic about a little bit, mm -hmm. not always, um, as, we, as we look into these things? Right. And of course, I didn't want to be agnostic about those questions because they're the tools of my trade. Yeah. And when I went in, I've, of course, I expected to ask those questions. And like, can you please talk about class? And can you please talk about gender? If you're going to talk about capitalism, where, you know, where do you come from in the society? Or what do you think about you know, the layers of Japanese society? And of course, there's difference and ethnic difference and many things that are, you know, so what I found was this, you know, like just a you know, hugely strong desire to move um, towards the prim primal experience to, to, to narrate everything in terms of, of total absorption and sublime experience from so many people. And if I ask, uh, um, you know, the, Tara Rogers has an excellent book about noise called Pink Noise, which she talks about gender. And one of the problems that, that, that she had, of course, doing this book was asking women electronic musicians, you know, to describe what it was like to be a woman, elect, uh, you know, making electronic music. And they would say things like, well, yes, of course, you know, um, there are all these conditions. And then, you know, uh, they were stuck and a lot of times they resisted and didn't want to say it. And I had the same experience where people would say to me, well, you know, of course it matters, but it doesn't matter. And, the, you know, and the, the, there's a really, really strong desire among people to stay away from those conversations. And so it was very hard. And I kept on asking those questions over and over. And I have things to say about it, you know, and, and how things shape up the way they do. But I think that some of the things, I realized that following some of those threads would lead me to things that weren't very specific about noise. My mandate was to say the things that were. And so the, the things that about the gender divisions in the scene are not that different from the gender divisions in hardcore, heavy metal, or hip-hop, and so many other things. In fact, you know, Slightly more women are involved in the scene than, than others, but that doesn't, you know, cut it either way, one way or the other. So, um, or what about a category like friendship? Do people talk about? Yeah. Their other talk about friends. Yes, they do. And I mean, did that, did that, was that inflected in any way by a kind of a shared love for noise? Definitely. And was there a texture to that conversation that? I don't know. Yeah, it's 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 really. You know, I mean, one of the things about this project, you know, it's like, it's, it's, it's not the kind of access, I didn't have the kind of access to people that some people might have had in their eth ethnographic work, you know, and people, a lot of times their reaction to me was, uh, are you still here? You know, didn't we already talk about this? You know, there's, you're doing work in a city, I mean, you know how, how it is, you're not like putting your HUD up next to someone else's HUD and like, you know, having them adopt you. You know, they're just like, you know, didn't you go home, you know? <laughs> and so, you know, the, you know, asking people questions about their friendships was not like the simplest thing in the world, but you see them and you observe them and you start to recognize that, you know, of course, when somebody, it's like, you get me, you're the only one who gets me. That's why I'm sending this tape to you for, you know, $5 in postage and I spent all this time gluing these things to it and I'm going to, it's for you and you're going to get it. And that makes, that makes a huge difference. It means, it means a lot. And I found, you know, I don't want to reduce that all to, to fantasy and to say that people are just saying, oh, some Japanese guy likes me. But, you know, those are some of the things that, it, that started people um, imagining the, a scene in Japan was, was they couldn't believe it when they got a tape from Japan, you know. And so the, I don't want to make it all reduced to that, that frame. There are all these amazing, I mean, I have a lot of friendships that came out of this and that matter a lot. Uh, and... Um, so, yeah, th those things are, are, are definitely there. But it's hard to get people to talk about noise in that way. They'll refuse it to talk. They, they, they say things that aren't true, uh, in my opinion, all the time, right? You know?
like it doesn't matter, it doesn't exist, and um, you know, uh, it only matters for me. I don't care what the audience thinks. Lots of things that musicians say to be pure, you know. Uh, let's yeah, okay. Um, so just a follow-up on gender issues. Um, in terms of the audience, uh, I had the impression, you know, just watching this video, I had the impression that uh, the audience is also gendered too. So is that cool? gendered in the sense that there are, that there are lots of men? Mostly men. Yeah. And I saw only, I think, two women uh, who were in a. In this last clip? Yes. There are a lot of women in this last clip, actually. Um, they look very out of place because the men were all all in trance and the women were sitting very quiet. So that's my impression. From yeah. Video. So is that your impression? Or uh, it's not my impression, in, you know, entirely. Although I think the conditions of what you're describing are typical, in the sense that it's very it's it's harder for a woman to be in that. I mean, it's it's physical. I was out of that that crush of people. I don't want to get my rib broken. You know, or like, you know, and, and that was the same way during all the other hardcore shows and grunge shows that I went to in the 90s, you know, where, I did, you know, and, and hardcore shows were the perfect example where you had these mosh pits and all the women had to fly out like a, you know, a centrifuge to the walls, you know. So, like, there's a very powerful gendered context to rock music and to these shows. Um, I don't think that most shows are like that one. And, and that, that women were on the stage, that you saw women on the stage, there, there were women who were in that, in that audience. It's actually surprising, you know. Uh, uh, compared to other contexts, but I'm, that you know, that all of what you're saying is true. Um, I don't know what to say about it, and this is one of the things that I found hard to write about. You know, to say about it that didn't lead me further and further away from what I wanted to describe, and so I felt like guilty about not being able to talk about the uh, gendered you know, stuff um, because I felt like there's, of course, it's very definitive stuff there, but I didn't know how to say it without it just saying what is fairly obvious about the situation. I don't know. That's a failure on my part. Yeah. I mean, is that? I, can I, you, you please respond, or yeah, because well, yeah. yeah, that might not be satisfying. I want to know what. I really want to have that conversation. Do you have more comment? No. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I am writing on. <laughs> <laughs> please, please, so, yeah. Later. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I'm done. Yeah, and I can tell you all the things, all the things that didn't, you know, that that are there in this in this scene about voice, especially. Um, okay, so we'll have one last question, and then we'll. Uh, and I want to remind people that there is a reception afterwards, and we'll continue the conversation there. But let's have one last question here. So my question kind of related. Maybe gender is not the question asked, but sex is. Well, it's a, it's 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 another really big kind of worms. I just see like it's a totally an orgasmic experience in a collective space, and uh, I was thinking about Ian's question about the alternative methods. You know, once you, um, you know, how do you categorize this kind of experience of uh, completely immersed or being overwhelmed by this noise? And in a sense, it's an ahistorical experience. It's like sex or libido or, mm-hmm. you know, libido itself is, does not have history, right? So mm-hmm. it's about, like, the, the moment, you know, there and then. And then it just over and then it replays again, you know? So... Maybe some. Maybe, I was thinking, you know, when you're asking what, what would be the question to ask, maybe is the question of like affect or libido or right. something that does not necessarily tell a, a story, a narrative, a historical narrative, but something just something universal, but um, you know, also very specific. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hear you. Um, I guess I don't think that. It is ahistorical. I mean, 
I'm, I'm saying that, that's, that this is what people are invested in, this is what drives the circulation, but it is, of course, in history, and people are entrained to, to feel the way they feel and that they are performing the way they feel, and it's the same with sexuality, right? So sexuality isn't a historical, and it is entrained, and it is something that comes out of social context and, and out, of, uh, out of different epistemologies of how one is supposed to behave and feel, and even an orgasm is something that can be conditioned in, in that way. It's not like a... But then the idea is that uh, there are things like orgasm or sublime experiences that, that are totally transcendent of all these conditions and that you know, people invest themselves in that belief. And so sexuality becomes a place where people look for those transcendent universal experiences like music. And so the comparison comes easily uh, between orgasm. But nobody's having an orgasm here. Um, and I think it's really important to, when you're doing ethnography to know the differences between sexuality and metaphors of sexuality. And so th- there are a lot of uh, metaphors of sexuality that accrue to this music, and one of them is S&M. And one of the great things that I didn't mention today, which is another thing that's, that's always, uh, that I didn't deal with very well, is the S&M uh, practice of one of the famous musicians, Meritzbau. And um, you can see there are bondage ropes and you know, images like that that are used. And, some of, and that's you know, his his contribution, and um, I don't have access to his uh, life in that way, I don't ha- and, and I only know what he says metaphorically about, about his sexuality, but I know that he was involved in that. But so it's one of those limits of ethnographic methodology that I can't, I'm not writing about uh, their sexual experiences, you know. And that's, 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 so that's an important thing to, to know that you're up against, because I, I think that the metaphor is powerful of pain and pleasure and, uh, in this music. Where can you see a noise show here? Well, Boston is a great place to see noise music. And um, I don't live here, uh, but Wayne, maybe? I mean, what I would do is I would go to Lowell, and I would go meet Ron Lassard, uh, who has a small record store called RRR Records. RRR is in caps and then records. And um, I'm sure that he will tell you, if you just write it, Ron, tell you where to look. Um, you know, there, there are some great noise musicians like Jessica Rylan, who lives here. Look up Boston Hassle online, Boston Countercultural Compass. Lots of Compass, right. Going on almost every day. We're just hearing about Compass. Uh, Weirdo Records in, in Cambridge, the owner, Angela Sawyer, will oh, yeah. basically the, you know, the, she's the brain center of right up the so in Central Square. Yeah. Uh, which record store? Weirdo. Uh, Weirdo, yeah. Angela? And the great uh, Jessica Ryland, who's in her group is called Cant, lives here. And she's actually in She moved? Yeah, she's a degree in electrical engineering, that makes sense. <laughs> well, I think there's going to be some good networking we can do at the uh, reception. After this climactic conclusion, please join me in uh, thanking David. Thank you. All. All right, thank you. Thank you. Thanks, that was great. Excellent audience. Yeah, it was fun. All right. We'll walk over to a guy.